herzlich willkommen. Gesegnet ist der, der trauert, dass er getrestet wird. Welcome. Blessed is he who mourns, for he will be comforted. Which is entirely appropriate for this week's installment. It is one minute away from 7 a.m. on March the 31st, 2019, I'm told. Now, this week, I'm not going to be continuing with the interview of William Law. And there's a reason, and it's a good reason. For anyone who's interested in this topic, I can tell you of multiple podcasts that you could find wherein they'll talk about William Law, the laws. They'll, they'll talk about his relationship to uh, the early Mormon church. They'll talk about um, the function that he filled. They'll talk about the newspaper. And uh, some of them will go into uh, how his uh, running of that first copy um, out of that newspaper really did lead to the demise of Joseph and Hiram Smith. There, it, there are so many sources out there, both uh, in audio and video, in web print, if that's a, an appropriate expression, that can tell you about these things about William Law. They can they could give you the LDS perspective. They could give you the ex-Mormon perspective. What they're not going to do, and this is... Now, you know, uh, of course, uh, I'm not omniscient. And uh, with the way algorithms are now, I don't know of everything that's out there. But I can tell you this, I, I've searched a lot in, I don't know, let's say a month and a half for sources. Ever since I started the, mm, I want to say it was eight or nine part series of reading and commenting on the paper that Lance Owens did entitled Joseph Smith and Kabbalah. Now, you're not going to be able to find that in podcast form, and I doubt that I will ever transfer it to podcast form, because the, the impetus of it and how it was carried out was a bit different than where I have decided I want to go with making the investigative portion of what I do uh, as part of the Obery project. Um, I just doubt it's ever going to really fit that. 
incidentally, I would say, I would hope, uh, within at least a month or so, that uh, this portion of what I do uh, as a, a podcast, uh, hopefully I'll actually have uh, an intro finally completed for it. Not that it's necessary. Plenty of people do it without, but that's a goal. Now, what I can do is <clears throat> I could tell you, for instance, there's a podcast, and there's a lot of episodes on it. It's uh, it's chronological. The guy definitely uh, puts a lot of work into it. Um, you could find podcasts like Naked Mormonism. Um, if you're not that adverse to the language or his particular worldview, um, I mean, it's entirely listenable. And you're going to find a lot of this stuff that, that I could present. <laughs> You'll find them better presented from guys like him or there's the ex-Mormon uh, podcast that, that went from, I think, 2005 to 2007, and, and then was followed by some, some various other podcasts all the way up until, I think, within the last couple of years that I know of, um, that this guy was producing podcasts. He went by the uh, <clears throat> pseudonym Samuel uh, the Utenite. You can get a lot of material about these guys and these events from people like them. Or you can listen to Mormon stories. And, and he has um, he has guys on there like, like Michael Quinn. Um, he has guys on there like uh, Sean from uh, Heart of the Matter. Um, various uh, ex-Mormon and sometimes current Mormon uh, polemicists and apologists. And all of them got a story to tell. And you can get all of that stuff from them. And usually, it's going to be, it's going to be of a better quality as far as its form of presentation. So there's really no point. And I'll tell you something else that precipitated this. In this, in this last week, since I put out that last one, last Sunday, called uh, Wilhelm von Weimetal, Part 1, because I had really suspected that I was going to be able to do at least multiple parts having to do with the material of W. Weil as he went by in his pen name. But some things occurred to me between then and now. Something that occurred when I was going over the rest of the interview that Wilde did in 1887 with William Law 
I was looking through some materials on just about everything I could find concerning statements that Law's son, Judge Tommy, had made to Weil at the end, where he gave him a, a brief history of his father and where he came from and some of the basics of the events of his life. And I spent a long time trying to understand what brought somebody who said that their, their family was of Scottish descent to Ireland and where he was said to be from in Ireland and then to America and the fact that for instance, his father was a wealthy farmer. And, you know, I had to start thinking about who came from Ireland and in that area. Um, it was uh, Londonderry. It was a Londonderry area. And um, it was uh, the county Tyrone, I want to say. I couldn't find a lot on law, but when I started finding out why Scots were brought into that area and by who and in what time frame, because I was going to keep pursuing that. Sometimes, for anybody who's done uh, any research, whether you're actively doing research now, or whether you've had to just do research papers for college or whatever. A lot of you might understand what I mean when I say that it's just, it's so easy to get sidetracked in research if, first off, the material is interesting or the subjects. And secondly, if you embark on this without a solid thesis. And what happened was, when I had gone back far enough to find out what kind of people would claim Scottish descent, but would come out of that part of Ireland to America and already have the money to be putting their children, like William Law, through the education that he was put through from a young age when they came to America. When the light bulb came on, over my head, and I realized, and I said, oh, well, no wonder. That's who's behind it. Then it just hit me all of a sudden like a ton of bricks. I asked myself, what are you doing? What are you doing chasing these rabbit trails that are going to get you and everybody listening Nowhere. In a hurry. 
What are you doing? And as unbelievably ridiculous as this is going to sound, and it ought to sound ridiculous because it is ridiculous, I had up to that point, even though I had, of course, expressed what my ideas were just concerning the material that I had uh, read and presented from Owens's paper, Joseph Smith and the Kabbalah, uh, uh, combined with the extra resources that I brought into it as I went. Of course, I, I had expressed where I believed this um, could wind up going and why. I had a good idea about it. Um, now, given not all of my uh, ideas or perceptions uh, are correct, uh, especially uh, in their early stages, but usually uh, I end up developing these because of enough material evidence, enough empirical evidence that's presented to me to where I believe that it's, it's safe to theorize about certain things. So I expressed these things as I went through that series, Joseph Smith and the Kabbalah. <clears throat> However, the big mistake I made, and this really was a product of what happens when somebody is a resourcer, goes uh, a researcher, goes about collecting materials for their research. So, within the last two or three weeks. I had spent such an inordinate amount of time gathering up resources. And, and I mean primary resources, uh, not just secondary. The only secondary resources I was gathering up were secondary because I was forced to only get secondary resources because I could not find the, the primaries. But when I say primary, I mean the Zohar, various versions of the Zohar, the Babylonian Talmud, writings concerning the Talmud and the Zohar, looking into a lot of different Kabbalistic, uh, Mishnaic materials, um, searching at length for anybody who and I don't know how much you could ever really trust uh, anyone, even people that profess that they're ex-Masons. I don't know how trustworthy everybody, or I'm sorry, anybody who, uh, who writes on uh, Masonry or anything that happens to be a cult, Rosicrucianism. Um, and who I'm thinking of, of course, is weight. And I had to collect materials by weight. Um, and many more authors. Get those together. 
and start trying to make sense of them. And of course, Weil is in this mix as well. And then try to figure out how I could go about looking at as many of these as possible without doing complete read-throughs. You can't do complete read-throughs of the Zohar and the Babylonian Talmud unless you have got serious time on your hands. These documents are thousands of pages long. Um, and all of them happen to contain additional commentaries because of... Huh, um, I was going to say confusing, but maybe more just the, uh, the deliberate esoteric nature both and the other writings so in the course of, of gathering these um, and taking at least just past superficial looks into them and gathering what I could then from secondary sources who I figured would at least give me a bit of a road map I neglected one of the most important things that you have to do if you're going to do research. I had not, up to that point, as insane as it sounds, developed a working thesis. Now, as crazy as that probably seems to anyone <clears throat> who's done serious research, and it's, it's crazy, well, that's where I was. But I guess on the other hand, and I'm not trying to make myself look any less uh, silly in doing that, because I can do some pretty ridiculous things. Um, like with the... Uh, some of the podcasts uh, that I named, or a lot of the podcasts, or, or, or let's just say a lot of people who produce informative research-based videos, audio, papers, many people do that, or let's just say bloggers, because that, that's, that's a good one too, because you can be a blogger and you don't have to develop strong theses. There's a lot of people that produce serials, and, and I don't mean the General Mills kind, serials of information that don't necessarily have to have that thesis. And of course, therein is the problem, is that it was never, it was never my intention. It was never going to be, in my mind, part of the form of what I was going to do to make this a serial. The problem is, because of, of restrictions of time, there, it has to be in installments. I wish I could actually just do this for an hour, hour 20, give you all the information I need to give you to prove the thesis that I've now developed that has to be proven for me to move on to some things that 
Well, they go in directions that are a bit different, but all of this, and you'll find this when you, when you start look at, looking at history, real history, the really real history, where you're able to insert all of those pieces that all of the supposed historians leave out. When you start looking at real history of any time period, and you've got all the factors present, not only do you understand how symbiotic everything in the world that was going on at that time now becomes but somehow and this might be just the byproduct of what I just said you gain a clarity that lends to a a sort of simplicity in understanding the things that transpired before and after. So, understanding this point in history and what transpired at least in the context of Mormonism is so important before I can get to some of those other items that I've already mentioned concerning uh, <clears throat> the Army Corps of Engineers and uh, the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1824 and a lot of the propaganda concerning movements westward in the United States, Manifest Destiny. I don't even know if anybody could tell the story of that without including the Mormons. So, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to start with telling you what my thesis is that I developed. I'm going to tell you that thesis. I'm going to tell you the nine points that go along with that thesis. I'm also going to talk to you a little bit about dialectics and controlling the narrative. And I want to at least convey to you the struggles that I've had now for, we're going to say it's been for at least the last month and a half plus, that I have been searching out and digging into every possible Mormon and supposed ex-Mormon source that I 
that I could. So that I hope when I convey some of those things to you that it will be good, fertile groundwork uh, for you to really latch your um, imagination and your expectations for what this thesis and its nine points ought to produce um, in the episodes to come. So let me talk to you for a minute about dialectics. There's a quote that's been attributed to various communist figures. But it's an ideology that extends far beyond them. In fact, it is a concept that is so rudimentary to the philosophy of a certain group of people that you can see it in about everything that you see produced by these people. And that is this. <clears throat> the best way to deal with the opposition is to lead it ourselves. One more time. The most effective means of controlling opposition is to lead it yourself. And I have to tell you, based on everything I've heard and read in the last month and a half, coming from both Mormon and supposed claimed ex-Mormon sources. I can tell you that besides four, we'll say another group, I haven't seen that done so prolifically and efficiently than I believe I have been witnessing coming from both Mormon and claimed ex-Mormon sources. So what do you do? Let's say we'll put you in the position of somebody who has started Oh, I don't know. We'll say that you've started some sort of political movement or ideology. And we'll go ahead and leave any particular one out of this. We won't name any. But let's just say you start this and while your aim is something far less than truthful and sincere and, and altruistic, and you know that eventually you're going to get people 
sniffing around and, and asking questions. Your, your actions alone are, are going to demand this. <clears throat> so, one of the most effective things that you can do to at least curb that, sometimes for a really long period of time, is you are going to make sure that everybody who appears to be in Stark, oftentimes, and it does come down to this, depending, oftentimes even violently opposing you and your organization, your movement, whatever it is, you're going to make sure that those people who are seen the most and who are heard the most are your people. They're working off your script. Now, it is going to behoove you and your efforts to definitely not make it seem as if uh, all of the dissenting voices who are on your team, I'm not talking about anyone organic, I'm talking about everybody who is secretly on the team. It's going to behoove you to make sure that out of all these voices, they certainly don't all fit the same mold. That would, that would mean that the, the jig would be up very quickly. So what you would need to do is, is see to it that you'd want figures, and of course this is going to vary depending on how many disinformation agents you've got out there, you're going to need some that definitely seem like they're completely coming from the outside. People who were never on the inside, you know? You're going to need a few of those. You, you definitely want some who, um, well, a lot of them, who uh, appear to be uh, disgruntled. Um, they're going to have to come from, of course, different strata. You're going to want some that seem to be at the very top and very much on the inside. Now, those ones, those are usually the most effective disinfo agents. Okay, you're going to want some of those. Uh, and you can't have all of them just say that they realized at a certain point that, you know, things weren't right. Um, you will definitely need a few who appear to have been uh, kicked out, let's say, under different degrees of circumstances. Um, you'll want some that uh, would seem to be just from the laity, uh, who, you know, they, they decided uh, over time that um, things weren't right. You gotta mix it up, okay? That's one thing that to be to put out a, a, an effective team of disinformation agents, you'd want to mix it up, definitely, because people that are out there that are paying attention, they're they're going to 
they're going to catch your scent a lot faster if you don't do that. Now, the other thing that you definitely want to make sure to do is um, flood the uh, flood the market, I guess, for lack of a better word, the information market. Flood the information market with disinformation. Now, a lot of it's going to come from them, um, but, you know, a lot of it can seemingly come from a, a lot of various sources. Um, a lot of it can be anonymous. But definitely make sure that all of the sources that most people would have to go to to look into this are flooded with dis disinformation and social media and um, let's just say the more popular uh, modes of, well, let's just say podcasts and, and blogs um, and popular books when, let's just say, people are doing uh, random searches for information on, on that topic, you know. So that is what's going to be typical for an organization that has plenty to hide and certainly does not want to uh, give up what's really going on anytime soon. They're going to have a lot of that. The thing that you want to watch for, if that's what's going on or you suspect that's what's going on, you want to watch for are there, are there certain aspects of their rhetoric that either seem to follow a script like there are just certain things they won't touch. We can apply this to some of the most uh, visible disinformation agents there are out there, general disinformation agents there are out there, the Alex Jones types, okay? And just get a group in your head who you know are spreading disinfo. And there's going to be certain things they don't touch. There's going to be certain areas of information they will not go into. Not under any circumstance, not in any context. Because if they go into those areas, there is always the chance of anybody who is um, consuming this dis disinformation to get ideas in their head, and that can come back badly on you. Now, on Alex Jones, he actually, at this point in time, because he's been doing it for so long, and, and that's the thing, these disinformation agents they don't usually have super long runs. They can usually do relatively short runs before enough people catch on to where they either just stop listening or let's just say stop reading or buying their books or whatever. 
or they start calling them out on it. And when they do that, then that is when they actually have to start approaching the subject that they up until then would not have touched. But they all have a script, and they all have things they won't touch. Now, getting into the context of Mormonism, the thing that I've noticed with the people that I heavily suspect um, are secretly working for the Mormon higher-ups. And if I say higher-ups, uh, I am talking about the people who would not for a second believe any of the information that they spread for the consumption of the lower tiers of Mormonism. Okay? Those are the higher-ups. The ones who would not for a second believe any of the stuff that they absolutely rely on all those beneath them believing. Now, there are some at certain tiers who they might have suspicions. But I will tell you this. It's remarkable how much somebody who either wants to believe something or let's just say doesn't want their worldviews or their world to come crashing down around them, there are some things that they will accept or ignore in order to maintain that world. I see people who do it all the time, and I've never been a Mormon. I've only actually known in my whole life, I've only known of, of like a few people who told me they or their family were Mormons. Um, these were certainly not dedicated Mormons either. So I didn't know really anything about this until recently. But people in... Um, we go to uh, a, a basically evangelical uh, church corporation. And I'm always going to call it a church corporation as long as it's incorporated. Uh, the church is actually the people within that who are truly saved, truly converted. They truly have the spirit of him who's called Christ dwelling in them. That's the church. The organization, not all that unlike the LDS organization, is just that. It's an organization. It's a corporation. Even many of those people will do the very same thing, even pretty high up. And, you know, the funny thing is, too, with, with Mormonism, um, a lot like uh, Jehovah Witness, and there, there are others that qualify as evangelical who pretty much do this, too. Um, 
they essentially have unpaid clergy um, because certain people are expected to act as um, clergy or ministers uh, in a certain ward for certain amounts of time and all that. Okay. And I'm not going to explain that in depth because, first off, it would be a rabbit trail. Secondly, I haven't taken the time to look into all of the ins and outs of the way that the church structure functions. All I'm trying to tell you is that the folks that run the show... I promise you, could not be considered Mormons in the sense that you can consider the laity and various tiers of clergy up to a certain point. Once you get to that point and above, there is, and it's a lot like even Masons, it's a lot like a lot of things. Anything that's Babylonian. Is going to be like that. The, the masses, the, the great majority of the people participating, from the bottom up to a certain point, are not, let's just say, not consciously complicit, unless we're talking about people who are denying things that they see. Because, again, going back to, they don't want their worldview obliterated. So those people that are at the top, though, would not for a second be considered Mormons because they don't believe any of this. But they very much need many, many others, about to the tune of about 15 million on the inside to believe it. And they need pretty much about everybody on the outside to believe that they and all the indoctrinated Mormons below them believe it. There's more lies that they typically want the people on the outside to believe, but it does definitely depend on a lot of lies and a lot of disinformation. Because for one thing, you have to know there are many Mormons still within that organization that are listening to dissenting voices and opinions. And the key to all of this, to whittle it down, uh, to get us closer to the thesis, the key to all of this, whether we're talking about um, the Mormons on the inside or the people on the outside looking in, critics or just your general average Joe, the key to that and maintaining the structure and keeping up the con is perpetuating the idea that Joseph Smith was the centerpiece. And then after Smith, you can go to Young and you can go to Taylor and so on and so forth. You can bring some other individuals, of course, into this. You can talk about the way that they, let's say, uh, related 
to Smith, you can talk about ways that they related to one another. But in the end, something that has to be a core concept in the misinformation is that, and we're also talking about Mormon doctrine here too, and the disinformation gatekeeper people. What has to be key, fundamental to keeping this con going, is that Joseph Smith, like the rest of the fake history we get taught all the time, that Joseph Smith conceived of these things and implemented these things and led this organization himself, that he was the impetus and the vehicle behind all of the things that happened up until the point when, well, if you're a Mormon, he was martyred. And if you are one of the myriad of disinformation agents, you can say he was uh, right and properly shot by uh, an organic mob that formed in Carthage, and that all of the events from the time of William Law starting that paper sinking $2,000 into it in 1842. He, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Anyways, you have to keep up the appearance that we're talking about organic events happening with regular old people, and it's fine if you want to say that Smith was not a regular person. He was, you could either on the inside, we're going to call him a prophet and a great man, and on the outside, we're going to call him uh, a charlatan and an extremely talented con man, so talented that he got away with all of the crap that is attributed to just him pulling on people for 16 straight years. And he is keeping it all together. And he, along with, we'll say, some other individuals, because you know, by the time we get to Kirtland and Nauvoo, we can, we can count the quorum of 12 into it and uh, can definitely count some of his closer advisors. And we can't forget Hiram, of course, but definitely at the end of the day, in order to keep up the con, it's got to be just them. And there can't be an ulterior motive that under girds the whole thing. There can't be an invisible, nameless, hidden hand behind this, because if there is, the jig is up. That's the way this information works. And you know, relating this back, 
to William Law and what I was looking into about why his family claims Scottish ancestry, but yet were in the county Tyrone in Ireland, and what went on in Ireland around that time, what went on in Ireland at the hands of Oliver Cromwell and his model army, and who was behind Oliver Cromwell and his red model army. Like with so many who claim to be giving you real history but aren't because they're always leaving out the most important part. So too do I believe so many. And I can't say all, because there can be plenty of people out there, there can, who are simply disgruntled, very authentic, disgruntled Mormons who they have not yet reached this point in their mind to go a little deeper. But concerning all of them out there, these disinformation agents. These factors, just like with the history of the 17th century England and Ireland and Scotland, the UK in the 17th century, and all the things that transpired between politics and the churches, between the Protestants and the Red Model Army and the Irish Catholics and the slaughter thereof by them. There are these key factors that if you leave them out, you're going to keep scratching your head and you're not going to get it. Now, I'll grant you this. Not every theory is right, especially when you do the kind of research that I do. You may have, you may have a number of theories, a number of theses that you just have to try and you have to test and you have to see how much validity there is to them. And not everyone is correct. But I can tell you, before reading this to you, that this thesis and its nine points are all of it based on information that I've already gathered. I don't know if you could come up with any kind of a <laughs> decent thesis if it wasn't based on at least a decent amount of information you'd gathered. So, without any further ado, the thesis that I will be working off of from this point forward goes as such. Joseph Smith Jr., however persuasive, talented, and ambitious, 
could not have been the true leader of the movement called Mormonism. Possibly from its conception, it would have had to have been backed and steered by a hidden hand, which is most likely Kabbalistic Jews in tandem with Freemasonry. Smith, Emma, and others at the top were all Jews, Masons, or both, and without a doubt, early Zionists. As a subpoint, naturally, this begs the question, what was the point of Mormonism? Why a religion? What purpose does Mormonism as a religion serve? Point one, family, Joe Sr. and Lucy, Zionism, Masonry, the Book of Mormon, design and implementation, the connection of early players and folks. There are the connections. They exist, and for, I would say, for reasons beyond me, other than the fact that I just went over all the reasons this is happening. These early associations, familial associations, and let's just say religious associations, are so key to understanding the creation of the Book of Mormon and, we'll say, and doctrines and covenants and pearl of great price. All of the, and key sermons, King Follett discourse, all of these things, they all have connections they all go back, they exist, and they are left out of so many narratives. When they come in, of course, they're not followed to their logical conclusion. Point two, financing. Follow the money. A movement that size, that gained the sort of momentum that they gained in the time it was gained, the things that were done required financing. And a lot of stories have been told, and they don't add up. And if we start understanding the money aspect to this, we're going to understand so, so much more about it. Now, point three is movements. <clears throat> Why to where and when? And there are some remarkable movements and events that happen, even from, if we want to box it in, from 1828 to 1840, we can say about the time that uh, 
the group headed out to Salt Lake. 46. Those are important. Those are going to tell us a lot. Point four. And this is, this is where the law interview really popped for me was so little in the context of these narratives, whether we're talking about inside narratives or outside narratives, are organic people's stories. So few of them have that ring of truth. Now, point five, the Danites. And um, some have claimed that the Danites and the Destroying Angels were, in fact, the same uh, group. And we'll see, perhaps. But point five, the Danites likely worked for the real backers of LDS. Um, and Smith, both Joseph and Hiram, were not killed by a mob, but they were whacked. They had become a liability, especially Joseph, but Hiram too. And there's reasons why. You can find out these reasons about Hiram, why he would be a liability. You can listen to uh, regular uh, church historian uh, podcasts, and you'll, you'll, you'll find that out. They were more of a liability than, than they were worth. Point six is uh, there was a design to all of this. You can see a design. It transcends the Book of Mormon, the doctor, Doctrines and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, etc. Um, and you're going to see it in actions, in movements, and their organized crime activities. Point seven, religion was the obvious choice to hide the actions of a large organized crime outfit with a Goyim army in tow. And in order to have such a large Goyim army in tow and at your disposal, you have to play to the flesh of the members. Uh, and to, like I, I mentioned earlier, those desires that so many people have, because so many people, especially, um, I see this in your typical Anglo-Saxon people, they really want to just live a life. Um, more than I can say I see with, with most other people types, other races, um, and that could just be because I am Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, and most of the people I know intimately are as well. Point eight, terminology. And we're going to see this all over the place. Um, due, due to the, um, the existing hidden hand that was there long before the BOM was there, 
already having an existing set of terminology that they used among themselves, we're going to see that same terminology showing in the way that Mormons talk to the bottom in some ways, but you're going to especially see it uh, originating with and coming from hierarchy on down. Um, things like calling everybody who was not a Mormon a Gentile. What we're going to see is that their terminology is going to be absolutely parallel with Talmudic Kabbalistic terminology. And point nine, we're going to see in so many ways how Judaism and Mormonism and Freemasonry, really, they're parallels. They're all parallels. So, starting with the next installment of this, we'll start on point one. And we'll see what I've been able to come up with. And actually, it's I'm kind of surprised all I've been able to come up with on that point so far. But I think maybe you will be too. So, in the meantime, until next week, um, I want to thank everybody who has done so much to be so supportive um, morally and financially um, and prayerfully because I always need it very bad. Not just for my health, you know, and what's going on with uh, with cancer treatments right now and everything. No, 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 not just that. But absolutely the work that I do, because I, I couldn't, I couldn't emphasize in stronger words just how many people are out there that are extraordinarily talented people. Uh... And not all of them are controlled opposition. I really, I really hope. <laughs> um, but, you know, and um, I do spread myself thin. There's the website, O-B-R-Y-P-R-O-J-E-K-T dot I-N-F-O. There's the blog I just started as a sub uh, portion of the resources page there is the constancy of working at expanding what's on the resources page uh, and I'm still not done with all of the uh, the text of the site yet uh, there still is on like the about page a lot of text that the uh, the company had hired to do it had put that text on there, and uh, it doesn't really reflect what I I want it to reflect. So that you know, there's that, and there is the working on the audio visual presentation of Euphrates, a problem with geography, and there are these weeklies and the research that goes into those and the other subjects of research that I don't at this point in time because I can't because you know I'm still in the 
middle of just pure straight research, reading and testing and taking notes on and journaling and figuring things out. So there's a lot of bases that I try to keep covered. And that's why I say uh, how much I value all of your prayers. And again, just thank people very much for your support. I can't tell you. So until next time, I hope everyone is well. Take care.